Welcome to today's program. Uh, my name is uh, Glenn Deason. I'm a professor at the University of Southeastern Norway. Uh, with me is my colleague Alexander Mercuris from the very informative and popular Duran. And the guest today is uh, none other than the excellent Michael Hudson, a very renowned economist. He's written, written brilliant books, which I can't recommend enough on uh, on the industrial economy, the financial economy, the process of debt, uh, empire, collapse. So uh, he's uh, really yeah, one of the great uh, economists of our times. So um, so the reason we really wanted to talk to him today is because we, well, we're living in an age where the world is undergoing tremendous transformation. I would argue that many of the conflicts uh, and wars we currently have have at least some origin in economics. And uh, uh, what has gone wrong? And uh, what will be the new alternatives coming next is really something we, we want to explore today as we see that the main trend of these days appear to be the relative decline of the West, both the United States and Europe. And we also see the rise of the East, uh, especially then with China at the forefront. And uh, often the analysis we're presented with in the media is often limited to GDP, which doesn't really help us to understand why the US, for example, have lost its competitiveness its industrial strength, its ability to compete, especially with the Chinese. And uh, while we tend to refer to the Chinese as uh, you know, a communist country, it has to be pointed out that to a large extent, they appear to resemble uh, the industrial economy of the United States in the 19th century, that of the, especially the American system, I would say. And we don't have to limit it to China. It appears that Russia is, a, is building a similar economic, well, following a similar economic formula, if you will. So, uh, so I wanted to hand it over to uh, Michael Hudson first, and I thought we can start off if, by explaining, uh, I guess, what what signifies this U.S. transition uh, from an industrial economy to a financial economy, and why is this so important to understand in terms of. Uh, well, what's happened with debt and uh, the extension or overextension of empire? Well, you said that the United States has lost its competitiveness. And actually, uh, it's worse. The United States decided it didn't want to compete. And this goes back to the Clinton administration uh, in the 1990s. Uh, the Clinton administration's objective and that of the Democratic Party was basically a class war against labor, that how do we lower the wages of labor so that we can increase uh, the profitability? Well, the way America had of lowering the wages of labor was let's uh, uh, hire Asian labor, especially Chinese labor. Let's let Chinese uh, into a trade relationship with us, into the WTO. And then instead of having to bid up the price of uh, labor in our industrial centers, Detroit and uh, the South and uh, the Midwest, uh, we'll hire uh, products made by Chinese labor. That will keep down wages here. And uh, America can be in a post-industrial economy. and. During the 1980s and 90s, all of the economic discussion was, how do you have a post-industrial economy? Uh, they, they didn't want to industrialize. They thought that industrial labor was blue-collar labor. Uh, and in America, uh, you're not going to have uh, college graduates uh, or even high school graduates wanting to have a blue-collar job. They want 
a service industry job. They want uh, to make jobs something that's not industrial, uh, a managerial job. So a new phrase came into being, the professional managerial class, uh, uh, technology, uh, and the idea of uh, American uh, economic growth from the 1990s on was instead of producing manufactured goods, we will develop intellectual uh, property monopolies, especially in information technology, in pharmaceuticals, and uh, we will uh, America will make its uh, uh, economic growth and GDP not by making profits to employ labor to produce more and more goods and services, but to have monopoly rents for our uh, pharmaceuticals. So we can make uh, uh, pills that cost 10 cents each and sell them for $500 each. We can make computer programs for uh, automatic uh, artificial intelligence and for computer chips uh, and for uh, all of the information technology we have at enormous markups. And we can live on our, our economic rents uh, live off the fat of the land, as they used to say. We don't have to have blue-collar jobs. Everybody can uh, work in an office and make money that way. So in a way, what's happened today is exactly what America wanted. And all of a sudden, uh, they've uh, woken up to the fact and said, how can America run the world and be number one if it doesn't have a manufacturing power, if it's dependent on other countries for its uh, manufacturing and now for its technology, uh, and if it's uh, uh, all of this is financed by running into debt that the economy runs up for uh, the military spending abroad to prevent other countries from competing with the United States when actually it's the United States that has decided we want you to compete because your production and competition with us is what's winning the class war against labor. Your competition is what's holding down uh, the, the price of labor. So uh, they haven't really thought what does a post-industrial economy mean? Well, it turns out to be a financialized economy. Uh, and uh, you have today uh, in the uh, the election uh, for 2024 uh, is being prepared, uh, the, uh, the bewilderment of the Democratic Party here. Uh, if you look at the GDP, President Biden says, you're doing so well, look at GDP. And the vast majority of Americans, according to every poll uh, in every part of the country, says, we're not doing well at all. We're doing awful. And uh, it, it turns out that when you look at what is uh, the American GDP, well, almost all of it is uh, the growth in prosperity, the growth in uh, financial uh, benefits for the 1%, maybe for the 10% of the population. And that oh, the 1% and the 10% has uh, increased its wealth so much since uh, the uh, 2008 uh, led the Federal Reserve to slash interest rates that uh, the 1% and the 10% gain is larger than the loss for the 90%. So all that the uh, president, can, uh, Biden, can say is, who are you going to believe? Are you going to look at the statistics or are you going to look at your own life? 
and what you have to spend at the grocery store and what you have to spend on rent and housing as uh, America turns away from a homeowner's economy into a rental economy. As, uh, there's a huge concentration of uh, uh, land and housing uh, in the hands of absentee landlords instead of uh, private home buyers who now cannot afford to buy a home when the interest rates are, uh, are soaring to over 7.5%, uh, in which case, if, if you buy a home with a 10-year mortgage, in only 10 years, the bank makes more money for, uh, for the mortgage than the seller of the house makes. Uh, so indeed, America's found that, yes, uh, what is the post-industrial economy? It's a financial economy. And a financial economy has savings on the asset side of the balance sheet and debt on the uh, liability side. But uh, the, the savings on the asset side are held mainly by the 1%, and the debt on the liability side is owed by the 99%. So uh, when President Biden said, and the economists' profession, uh, Paul Krugman and the Nobel Prize winners all say, well, you don't have to look at debt because we owe it to ourselves. Well, the we who owe it are the 99%, and the ourselves are the 1%, and that's what is uh, uh, leading uh, the United States to uh, be not a very happy economy these days. Well, what you've described it, to a British ear, and I, you know, I, am, I live in Britain, I'm, I'm in London, is not completely unfamiliar. I mean, it's <laughs> like the kind of cycle that we went through ourselves in Britain. I mean, you had this... Um, system that the British created basically in the late 19th century. We have commodities flowing in. There's a, I think there's a, I think it was Keynes who talked about how if you were a person of certain affluence in Britain, just before the First World War, you could order things from all over the world and they would come to you. And we had a heavily financialized system. We had the Bank of England. We had the City of London. We had um, our currency pegged to gold. We insisted that people, to, to a great extent, trade with our currency. We started to neglect our industrial base and rely increasingly on the profits of our empire. And, you know, the rental systems began to take hold. And one of the things that happened in Britain is that, of course, wealth gradually began to drain upwards. It was, it was like, you know, within the social system, you saw some people in late 19th century, early 20th century Britain becoming incredibly rich and building their, their houses and buying their Rolls Royce silver ghosts and sending their children to expensive schools and living a very agreeable life. But the rest of the country going through a time of shall we say, economic atrophy. And, of course, that happened within a framework of empire and a framework of imperial control. And it seems to me that's one of the big differences in with the United States today is that, at least with the British, they could control it to some extent because they actually had a proper formal empire. The United States doesn't have it in exactly the same way. So you are grafting a late imperial British structure without having the mechanics of empire as well-defined as the British did. I, I, am I getting this completely wrong? No, you've this... got the 
point. Uh, the the yeah. the uh, the explanation of what happened is that empires don't pay. If you look at the ni- Britain in the nineteen thirties, uh, that was uh, uh, it. Certainly was uh, solidifying its empire with imperial preference, and uh, India and other countries had to save all their money uh, in England. But all of the money that Britain made from its empire ended up being used to pay the United States. So Britain had a uh, a surplus with its empire and a deficit with trade with the United States and with U.S. firms. So it turned out that already in the 1930s, the United States was the beneficiary of the empire. And of course, that uh, enabled the United States to uh, write the rules of world trade and the uh, uh, the International Monetary Fund and the British loan in 1944 and 45, uh, so that England had to basically uh, give up its empire to the United States. It had to end imperial preference. It had to introduce free trade and free investment, which meant that India and the empire could spend all the money that they made during World War II anywhere they wanted, meaning uh, who was, where did they want to? Well, the only country that had enough uh, uh, industry to uh, give them what they wanted was the United States. Well, the United States is going through what England went through today. The empire really didn't pay. And starting with the uh, Korean War in 1951, uh, the United States moved from a position where uh, it started in 1950 with 75% of the world's gold held in the United States. The Korean War pushed the United States into chronic balance of payments deficit. And I've done the statistics that I've published in Super Imperialism, and uh, the entire American balance of payments deficit was military spending abroad to protect the empire. The private sector in America was just exactly in balance. Trade, foreign investment, uh, borrowing, tourism, all of that was balanced. The entire deficit was military spending. Uh, and uh, to sort of, uh, it felt to lock in the empire. Well, you've, you, you're seeing that today accelerating. And the problem is, uh, how can America finance uh, uh, the military spending abroad? Well, ironically, the uh, what happened was the military spending in uh, Vietnam and Southeast Asia forced America off the gold standard, as you know, in 1971. And what were foreign central banks going to do? With their uh, uh, with all of the dollars that were flowing in, uh, they weren't going to do what uh, General de Gaulle and Germany were doing and buying gold. All they could do was uh, say, "Well, we have to invest our uh, uh, money in uh, secured securities. We'll buy U.S. Treasury securities." And so, all the money that America spent abroad militarily was sent back. To the United States by by the central banks of Europe uh, and other payment surplus countries to finance the uh, balance of payments deficit for the war. So in effect, the whole international monetary system was based on uh, 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 IOUs for America's military spending across the world. Well, you can imagine what's happened today now that the United States has uh, taken a very belligerent uh, position in the world saying it's uh, uh, it's it's our way or we're just going to smash things up. Uh, the United States, uh, this system has split the world into two 
opposing camps, as I think you've said on this show. Uh, I watch your show regularly, and this is what you've been talking about week after week after week, how the world is dividing up and uh, what are the dynamics uh, of this. That's uh, uh, what you've been talking about. And it's uh, obviously other countries think that it's sort of a crazy international financial system when uh, they're being threatened by America's military uh, adventurism of China, uh, in the Near East and all over the world, uh, wouldn't shouldn't they have a uh, a system that doesn't rely on the dollar uh, and is, relies on their own mutual trade and investment? That's what's changing the whole world economy today. Absolutely, and it it, it also is affecting trade flows because, again, and I'm going now back to what the British were doing with their empire. One of the aspects of British imperial preference is, of course, the colonies were obliged to trade with the empire on the empire's terms, on Britain's terms. And that did have an effect. It distorted the way the economies performed. I mean, you can see that in India. I mean, one of Gandhi's, Mahatma Gandhi's campaigns was about the imports into the, the way in which the cotton trade between India and Britain worked. And it worked entirely to the benefit of Britain. And it actually was not beneficial to people in India, or so he thought. And it, 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 beyond a certain point, it proved negative for the colonies as well. And they started to push back against this. And it, it, am I wrong in thinking that this is also part of what you've just been saying, that they're saying to themselves, well, look, why should we pay the Americans so that the Americans can threaten us? But also that perhaps they're also saying to themselves, well, why should we work all the time as, you know, build our factories, work hard in order to provide the Americans with the goods that they want? Um, and at the same time, uh, we get money from them, which we are expected to recycle back into the United States. Well, it's certainly true that it takes two to tango, uh, but uh, I think the the driving force today isn't other countries pushing back so much. It's America's pushing them away. It's the United States leaving them no alternative uh, but to uh, uh, protect themselves from sanctions and from the United States simply grabbing their foreign exchange that grabbed 300 billion of Russia's money. It grabbed Iran's money uh, long ago. It grabbed Venezuela's gold from the uh, uh, Bank of uh, England. It's, uh, it, there's a change of consciousness. There's a whole uh, awareness that the world needs to have an alternative to the U.S. dollar standard. And uh, the, the creation of an alternative means not only not using the dollar, it means creating a different uh, kind of international monetary fund for trade to finance uh, balance of payments and trade uh, obligations among the rest of the world, the global majority. It requires an alternative to the World Bank, not based on privatization of uh, infrastructure, but on uh, public financing of infrastructure to make its prices low, not high, uh, and not a profit opportunity. It means a, a, a whole alternative uh, financial system and uh, a trade system, and probably an alternative to the United Nations, which is uh, you see paralyzed these days. Now, this takes uh, uh, an enormous amount of 
uh, of effort to sort of say, well, you know, we're it's really uh, hard to break away from a system based on the U.S. and the unipolar system. At least we we knew what was happening. Uh, it's hard to create an alternative, but the United States has really forced the issue uh, and has forced them, uh, uh, China, Russia, Iran, uh, uh, the uh, Central Asia, uh, Africa, uh, South America, all realized that uh, we, we cannot live in this kind of uh, world where the unipolar system is going to take all of our economic surpluses and transfer them to the United States and uh, has a trade system where we're depending on American farm exports for our food. We have to be self-sufficient in food. We're depending on America for all of the technology uh, that uh, we need So and for the oil so that if America decides to uh, impose sanctions on oil, uh, all of our uh, factories and electric utilities have to shut down. We don't want to be in a position where uh, other countries can use trade and finance uh, and investment as a kind of economic uh, warfare. Uh, and so this has forced them to accelerate the creation of what really is a new economic order, and that's what we're seeing now. A whole different set of institutions with that are not, as uh, President Xi and uh, President Putin have said, uh, not uh, uh, unipolar, but multipolar. And multipolar means mutual gain for ourselves instead of your gain is our loss, a zero-sum gain, which is uh, the U.S. unipolar strategy. I think it's, it's, I, I mean these these this sorry Claire. No, oh, no, I just wanted to uh, ask a bit uh, about uh, what what would be a alternative policy for the United States to pursue. Because when you spoke about the international division of labor, it reminds me to some extent about uh, the British repealing the Corn Laws in the 1840s. The idea being, you know, British should monopolize on manufactured goods and uh, well seeking rent from this and then the rest of the world could compete driving down the prices on agriculture uh, but uh, from the 1990s of course uh, the united states uh, pushed for monopolizing largely on uh, finance and uh, the high-tech industries so by extending uh, intellectual pro property rights in return for uh, well seeding its uh, manufacturing as, as you were speaking about but it, it looked uh, 30 years later now, we can assess it didn't go very well because all those people in the United States who worked in manufacturing, they didn't go to high-skill, high-wage jobs. Most of them went into retail, so low-skill, low-wage, creating this huge gap within the United States, even intensifying this polarization between the super-rich and the, well, now super-poor. And uh, so this is what happens domestically, but uh, internationally... Uh, it wasn't even able to hold on to this top tier because the Chinese were cl climbing up global value chains. And uh, uh, as you pointed out, uh, the response has been to double down, that is uh, continue the financial economy and also pushing away the rest of the world. So uh, when the Chinese are challenging the US, they're you know seizing, blocking their technologies, their chip technologies, they're you know, seizing the money of the Russian central bank, uh, effectively proving to them that they can't live in this U.S.-dominated system anymore. So it seems they're doing everything wrong. So uh, I guess my question is, what would be the right thing to do? What what uh, what what should the United States be doing at this point? I'm sorry to disappoint you, but there is no right thing that the United States can do. It's in a trap. It is what it, it's in uh, what economists call the optimum position. A mathematician say it's optimum because whatever you do 
is going to make things worse. Uh, and that the the United States has painted itself into a corner, uh, and the only way it could get out of uh, the corner would be to be a different kind of a country, a different kind of an economy. Uh, for instance, uh, as long as the United States has the enormous military spending throughout the rest of the world, that's going to be uh, pumping dollars into uh, the uh, world economy. And if other countries do not relend this money to the United States uh, 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 Treasury or the U.S. economy, then the dollar is going to go down and down. Uh, the, the United States uh, can't really compete, given the way in which it's structured. Uh, it's, it's medical care and it's housing and it's finance. For instance, uh, 18% of America's GDP is on medical uh, uh, spending. Uh, it's there's if if Americans uh, wage earners got all of their goods f for nothing, all of their transportation, all of their food, all of their clothes for nothing, they still couldn't compete. Given the fact that they have to pay uh, enormous amount of money, about uh, twenty thousand dollars a year, just for medical insurance and uh, the the. Uh, Rents in the United States absorb now about 40% of the income of wage earners. Here in New York, the average rent, average, is $4,500 a month. Well, you can imagine, $60,000 a year ju just for rent. How on earth can uh, 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 the United States uh, be a uh, finance its uh, trade and its investment when it's it, it, the cost of living and the cost of doing business is so uh, overpriced. Uh, the uh, the employers uh, have to pay uh, a large portion uh, of medical care uh, for their employees, and uh, they want it that way. They want a high medical. Uh, expense uh, for for their own labor because that means that uh, workers are uh, suffering from what Alan Greenspan, the Federal Reserve Chairman, called the traumatized worker syndrome. If a worker goes on strike, they don't get their medical care. All of a sudden, they have to pay uh, enormous medical care. Uh, they uh, they can't pay. Uh, their credit card monthly statement, and in the United States, uh, the credit uh, most uh, uh, wage earners have a, cre a negative credit card balance. Uh, the uh, credit card balance is nineteen percent uh, flat. But if you miss a payment, the the uh, interest rate goes up to thirty percent or thirty one percent. Well, just imagine if you're paying that much money on what you owe, and if your uh, debt is going up and up, you're not going to have enough money to buy goods and services. So uh, how can America become an industrial country and roll back the time machine and become the industrial uh, economy it was before if it can't sell to its own population because it's, uh, the, its wage earners spend their money on uh, health care, on uh, debt service, and on, on uh, housing, uh, and other countries are defending themselves by producing their own food, their own manufacturers, and they don't want to uh, uh, be subject to uh, an America that weaponizes its trade and investment as uh, a kind of uh, locking in its uh, unipolar political 
and uh, military power. It's uh, it, it can't be done. So the United States doesn't really have a cure. That uh, and it's decided uh, the one thing that it can try to do. Uh, it, it's it's given up on uh, the global majority. The one part of the world that the United States is able to still uh, su- uh, gain support from is Europe. And that's why it uh, uh, cut the North Korea stream pipeline. Uh, it wanted to make uh, Europe completely dependent on uh, American energy, uh, really to turn it into the kind of dependent colony that uh, England uh, and uh, uh, the Dutch tried to do in centuries past. Uh, where, so it turns out that the, uh, uh, the post-industrial economy is really a lapse back into the old feudal imperial economy and it's just not going to work uh, uh, as long as other countries have a role to play in their own development. Um, the, the, the former colony turns its imperial master into its own colony. There's a kind of ironic justice, I suppose. But anyway, I mean, that is a, that is a bleak picture, but it's understandable, perhaps, that other countries around the world are responding against it. And China never let itself, it seems to me, become part of this system and the Chinese put together policies which are now being I think looked at by many people around the world as potential alternatives and um, I, I, I noticed that Xi, Xi Jinping according to the Chinese readout he actually sort of alluded to this when he spoke to Biden today he said you know we must understand that one thing we do not want to become is what you are. He actually said that. I mean, it's actually there in the Chinese reader. We do not want, we do not want to supplant or surpass or, or become like the United States. We are seeking to rejuvenate through a process of modernization um, ourselves. And it's a, quite an interesting set of words, actually. Do, do you want to talk a little about China? Because it, it, it does seem in some so many ways to be a country that is not just different, but almost opposite to the way in which the United States has developed, at least in the post-war period. Well, words are very very important, and uh, we're dealing with a kind of Orwellian vocabulary here in the United States. Uh, again and again, President uh, uh, Biden has said uh, the United States is a democracy and China is an autocracy. And uh, just yesterday, at the end of his meeting with President Xi, uh, uh, President Biden went on television and said, well, I've just been dealing with a dictator. Now, what makes uh, China uh, an autocracy is that it's doing just exactly what the United States, England, Germany, and every other country does. It uh, it has public infrastructure uh, investment. It hasn't privatized its infrastructure. Uh, the most important thing that China has done is keep uh, uh, money creation and credit as a public utility so that China doesn't have to borrow from a wealthy uh, class of bondholders uh, and uh, pay. China can simply print the money uh, to finance its economic growth. So its economic growth has been self-financing. Well, the United States says that's autocratic. Uh, the democratic uh, way to do things is the government will own, will borrow from the private sector, and that leads the banks to tell the government, uh, we will only give you money if you do 
what we want to do. Uh, so what the United States calls democracy is what uh, 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 Aristotle and uh, everybody else calls a uh, what the, not an aristocracy, an oligarchy. Oligarchy. So, oligarchy. Uh, and uh, the uh, the irony is that uh, it's China uh, that is turning it out to be the most democratic country uh, by not having an oligarchy, but by having a uh, sort of a central government that is pretty much. Uh, acts uh, as, uh, as with group uh, uh, understanding. There's a, the whole central committee is very uh, uh, they uh, all talk together. It's not a one man rule at all. It's a it's it's a a, a very uh, a definite idea of what do we want to provide is the core of the economy at the lowest price possible. Well, you've seen what they've done with transportation. That's the public utility as it used to be in England and uh, every other country except the United States. States, uh, to uh, make sure that uh, the cost of transport is as low as possible. Communications uh, uh, is a public utility. Education. In the United States, it costs $40,000 now to get an education. Uh, other countries have free education. So uh, in the United States now, if you don't inherit money, to pay for uh, your college. If you don't inherit a trust fund from the 10%, then you have to take on student debt that is so large that once you graduate from college, you cannot afford to buy uh, your own uh, a house because the bank will say, I'm sorry, you're already uh, uh, spending so much money on your student debt that you don't have enough money to pay the mortgage too, you're going to have to rent. Well, China avoid that by having uh, free education. Uh, it's medical care. You can go right down the line. There are certain basic needs that uh, in uh, the United States, uh, and I guess England too now, uh, the, uh, la the labor and their employers have to bear the cost of. They don't have to do that in China. There's a certain minimum guaranteed price of living. The one problem, of course, is that China has not made uh, housing a, uh, a, uh, a public utility. And the reason is that uh, it is part of China's policy of let a hundred uh, flowers bloom. It left uh, economic uh, policy to the localities and to the uh, local uh, districts and cities throughout China. And the theory, uh, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, was let every city try to develop its own means of financing. Well, given the cost of building infrastructure, almost all the cities and uh, small towns in China and localities had to finance themselves by selling off land to real estate developers. And so uh, there was an enormous uh, uh, bias uh, in China for uh, private, for financialized housing, just as was occurring in the United States. So the one way in which the, uh, the Chinese economy has not freed itself from the Western model is in this financialization of real estate. Well, normally that would not be a problem for China because it is uh, uh, it, it itself is uh, the uh, money and uh, debt creator. So China is able to do something that the United States cannot do. If a uh, industrial company or corporation in China uh, has a, a problem, as it had with uh, COVID, and uh, can't pay its debts, uh, it's uh, it's not sold off to uh, and forced it to close down and uh, fire its labor. China writes down the debt. 
it's very easy for a government to write down corporate debt when the debt's owed to itself. Much harder to write it down when the debt's owed to a private banker who's going to scream. Well, the same thing in real estate. China uh, basically uh, could write down uh, the debt that Evergrande and the Country Garden and other real estate uh, huge uh, builders uh, and developers have run up, except that uh, for some reason, I think uh, at the uh, insistence of uh, the Shanghai uh, sort of neoliberals uh, there, the uh, Chinese government has guaranteed the dollar debt for uh, these uh, country, these companies to issue their debt. Well, there's no reason in the first place for them ever to have issued dollar debt because most of the Chinese money was spent at home, uh, except for what it had to import for uh, steel and uh, cement and uh, other uh, building uh, material. Uh, but China has done pretty much what the United States uh Fannie Mae has done by guaranteeing the mortgage debt, this ties it uh, in a knot. And the, I think what, uh, my guess is what the Chinese government is discussing right now is, are we, uh, now that uh, we're unable to uh, earn the dollars to pay uh, uh, the dollar debt because of the sanctions that the United States insists on, do we want to remove the government promised the underwriting uh, for the banks that have guaranteed this dollar debt. Well, uh, China has the option, and this is this is its uh, sort of a financial atom bomb that it has. It can say, well, uh, we're terribly sorry, we're going to let uh, the banks uh, go broke. Uh, that have made this dollar debt. The, their, uh, the real estate companies can't pay. Uh, that means that they're bad debts. The banks can't pay. We are going to let them go broke. But of course, we do have, fortunately, deposit insurance for uh, uh, all of the uh, depositors up to let's say, some given amount that uh, covers 90% of all of the deposits by Chinese families and workers and businesses, and uh, let let the debt uh, go under and start all over again with a clean slate. Uh, that, that, I think, is uh, what uh, logically is being discussed right now in China, and you can just imagine what that's going to do to uh, the the dollar holders. That, uh, that, to me, is the ultimate kind of de-dollarization uh, that we're talking about, and you can just imagine uh, where that's going to leave uh, 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 the, not only the United States, but other countries that have tried to hold their the wealth of their 1% and their domestic client oligarchy in dollars. Can I just say about the cheap costs of things? You're absolutely correct. I went to China and I was I, I, I was actually, uh, there was an awful lot of things that I saw there. But I saw, for example, the Chinese railway system, the high-speed trains. And I noticed, first of all, that they were both very cheap to travel on, but that they were designed to be that way in the sense that the engineering was exceptional but you didn't have this enormously complicated system of first class and second class and third class that you'd have in Europe, the very expensive uh, you know, seats that you would have for people who would pay more. It was, it was all actually both impressive and very functional. And, you know, and that is something that you noticed right across the board in terms of the goods... Uh, that, and services that are supplied to the Chinese population. It was something that 
for Britain at least, it was very striking. And now coming back to all of this, of course, another country, perhaps the one that um, Glenn and I know a lot better, Russia in the 1990s, went in the diametric opposite direction to the one that China took. They privatized everything. <laughs> they opened up their economy in every conceivable way. They allowed banks, private banks to be established. They made their currency entirely convertible. They privatized their housing stock, which up to then had been publicly owned. And of course, what happened was that by the time that uh, Putin became president, we had a small group of people who were immensely rich. They were also extracting rents from the Russian economy. And, you know, we both saw that. We both saw that for ourselves. You could see immense luxury in Moscow for this small group of people. They were able, because the ruble was convertible, and the government was propping up the price of the ruble um, using, you know, the oil rents that it was getting. They were able to convert their money into dollars at very preferential rates. And, of course, they were investing that money in the London housing market and New York and buying bonds. And they were also, of course, taking out loans in the West. So they went in the diametrically opposite direction to the one the Chinese took. Now, can you say some something about that? The uh, the Russian kleptocracy uh, made its money from uh, economic rent, basically natural resource rent. Uh, the The United States' uh, promise uh, to the Russians was, well, if you just uh, give all of the property to uh, the owners, give every factory to the factory manager, uh, give uh, the gas company to the heads of uh, managers of Gazprom. Uh, if you give it to them, then uh, nature will take its course and they will all uh, be led by uh, the invisible hand to uh, invest and uh, act just as the United States did. But actually, this is the exact opposite of every way that the United States got got rich. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Russians did not even have a progressive income tax for all of this. Well, here's what happened. Uh, in 1994, 1995, uh, when uh, Russia decided to uh, privatize, essentially, uh, there was a scheme that was put into its hands to privatize all of the uh, neurals, nickel, and the raw materials and the oil companies. And so the uh, the government uh, borrowed money from uh, the banks. The banks would write a check to the government, let's say for $5 billion. The government would take this check and it pledged as collateral. Uh, the holdings in Neural's Nickel and uh, other uh, oil and others, and the government then deposited this five hundred dollar, uh, five you know billion dollar check back in the bank that wrote it. So the bank wrote a check; it was redeposited there. It was free. The banks created free money. That's what banks do. 
they had saw they created on their computers on a balance sheet. And uh, it, sure enough, uh, Russia uh, ended up giving uh, all of its natural resource rent to the kleptocrats. Well, you you mentioned uh, the, the, that uh, they uh, wanted to get dollars. Well, how do they get the dollars? Here they have the stock in neural nickel and uh, Yukos oil. They The only way they can get money from the stock is to sell it abroad in England and America because the Russian savings were wiped out with the uh, hyperinflation. Uh, that So the Russians uh, didn't have any uh, ability to, to buy their own uh, uh, rent-yielding natural resources. Uh, only the foreigners did. And from 1995 to 1997, Russia's, Russia's stock market was the leading stock market, <coughs> the leading stock market in the world. And that was because it was a bonanza. It was a it was free money from the uh, public sector. And if you look at the last uh, two thousand years of uh, history, almost all the fortunes in every country in every century have been made by uh, getting money from the public sector. Uh, fortunes are made by privatizing what was in the public sector and by insiders giving it to themselves. That's how the Roman Empire uh, made its money, by seizing land right down to uh, uh, to the United States, uh, grabbing uh, land uh, from the Native Americans. Well, uh, you, you had uh, all of this privatization, and needless to say, the, uh, the kleptocrats' uh, uh, modus operandi was that of a, a rentier. It was a rent-seeking economy that the neoliberals advised uh, Russia to do, not a profit-making economy where uh, uh, industry would, industrialists would hire labor to uh, uh, produce uh, more goods and services. The fact is that the factories, as you know, stopped paying uh, the, the labor. And the one thing that Russia did not privatize uh, and give, give away freely was the housing. Uh, I made uh, three uh, speeches before the Duma uh, in 1994 and 1995, uh, and I brought over the uh, uh, America's uh, uh, former Attorney General, uh, Ramsey Clark, and others trying to convince them that uh, you should give everybody uh, the their housing, uh, just give it in their own name, they, then they wouldn't have to buy it. You'd, you'd create at least their own housing. You'd create an internal market. Uh, uh, th that wasn't done until uh, very, very late in the game, uh, until a point was reached where the Russians and also the Baltics uh, uh, states uh, had, uh, and all the post-Soviet states, had to pay enormous amounts of money uh, just to get housing, while uh, all of the other, the rest of the uh, land and natural resource wealth was given away freely by uh, by the kleptocrats. That was uh, the neoliberal travesty of uh, rentier capitalism. And uh, I think that's why when you read the speeches of President Putin today or uh, Secretary uh, Lavrov, you can see just the, uh, uh, the disgust that they feel almost for themselves for ever having been suckered into uh, this kind of neoliberal plan, and they're, they're, I think that's spurred them to say, well, look, we have to turn east 
not West. Uh, this is how uh, all of Europe and America are making its money. They're turning into a rentier economy. Uh, we've seen what that did to us. And uh, as uh, President Putin said, Russia lost more uh, of its population economically in the 1990s as a result of neoliberal rentier policy than it lost militarily in World War II. Well, it's never going to do that again. And that is what has uh, set its mind uh, so much on to creating an alternative. And when there's a will, there's a way. And there's now the will. And that's been the precondition for creating a much sounder basis for growth in Russia, China, and uh, the rest of the uh, uh, the uh, global majority. You mentioned the will, but what, what would be the, uh, the, the way? Because uh, do, do you see, I guess, uh, Russia following the same... Uh, path now as China has because uh, well when when we began this program I, I mentioned uh, the uh, the American system because I sometimes feel like this is the model uh, maybe at least China but also to a large extent Russia might be following because uh, they they were in a very similar situation now as the Americans were in the early 19th century in which uh, uh, the Hamiltonian economics all transformed itself into this American system where. The Americans said, you know, we we can't be dependent on British manufacturing, its uh, its infrastructure, uh, ports and such, and and its uh, national banks, and later on currency. But uh, so so they began to uh, well develop their own system uh, through a lot of protectionist policies. One would have to add, and uh, you also saw towards the end of the end of the nineteenth century, you had people. Uh, I know you re- referred to many times uh, economists such as Simon uh, Patton, who. Who, who viewed the idea of building a physical industry that is, well, uh, at least the infrastructure to be something uh, in, imperative investment for the government to make because it has a dual effect. On one hand, it makes industries more competitive by having the infrastructure in place, but it's also something that elevates the standard of living for the average citizen. So it seems, at least for the Chinese, that physical industries has been a key a key focus of its economic policy, but. Uh, uh, but but uh, I was therefore curious if it's the same same in Russia because uh, uh, the same three pillars of the American system you, you seem to I, I seem to see it in both countries in one hand where they seek uh, technological sovereignty that is uh, well what uh, Alexander Hamilton would then would he would have focused on manufacturing but now of course they look at digital platforms and their own. Uh, well, it was in critical uh, industries and technologies that there's some level of autonomy. Uh, they both uh, seek uh, this very vast uh, infrastructure projects to find new areas of connectivity to avoid, uh, you know, uh, American choke points. And last, they both uh, focus on de-dollarization, their own banks, uh, to yeah, not end up paying all the rent to the not just Americans but uh, the Europeans as well. So I was just curious if you can uh, say something about this. Do you see? Russia effectively having learned its lesson from the 90s and following that path or well, well what, what is the way that uh, the Chinese and Russians are going? Well, both uh, the Russian economy and the Chinese economy are operating on an ad hoc basis. There is no economic theory or doctrine that either countries developed to explain what they're doing. In fact, uh, China is still sending its economic students to the United States, where they're taught neoliberal financial uh, policy. And um, t- my students uh, tell me that uh, the um, uh, uh, students who've gone, the American uh, educated students, 
students get priority in being hired over uh, domestic students. So uh, China and Russia are acting pragmatically uh, in uh, a way to uh, uh, create an alternative to the neoliberal growth, but they they don't have they haven't systematized it in the way that industrial capitalists in the United States and England spelled out. Here's our strategy. Here is our set of laws that we have. Uh, it's uh, I guess you could say what uh, President Putin is doing is jawboning uh, the kleptocrats, uh, the, the wealthy class, saying, "Okay, you can keep your money, but you have to invest it uh, in ways that uh, we." agree will help uh, the Russian economy become self-sufficient, independent, productive, and more prosperous. So it's all done on an ad hoc basis. Uh, one of the problems is that uh, Russia by the 1990s uh, was probably the only country in the world that had no background in Marxism at all. Uh, they uh, Largely, this was a result of uh, uh, Stalin's uh, uh, popularization of volume one of uh, capital to say, well, capitalism is an exploitation of uh, uh, workers by their employers. Well, all that indeed was in volume one, but uh, Marx wrote volume two and three all about finance and rent seeking. And the one thing that uh, uh, Russia did not see coming in the 1990s was rent seeking and financialization and simply using the banks as a means of uh, back creating and backing monopolies as their source of income in a non-industrial uh, way. Uh, Marx would have called this a pre-industrial way. And Marx said, well, the, re uh, the revolutionary contribution of industrial capitalism was to free Europe from feudalism, from the legacy of feudalism, from the hereditary landlord class. We're going to get rid of the landlords uh, so that uh, there can be uh, popular ownership. Uh, and yet uh, there's still, uh, they never got rid of land rent. But land rent is now, uh, instead of being taxed away as the tax base, it's paid to the banks as mortgage interest in the United States. And in Russia and China, if you want to buy a house, uh, the, the land rent still, uh, as uh, China becomes more uh, uh, prosperous, uh, people can afford to pay uh, more and more for the housing they buy. And this, uh, they take out a larger loan in order to uh, to buy the house and the rent is paid to the bank. So China is letting a rentier financial sector develop in its midst uh, because it hasn't really defined uh, what is the model of growth uh, that we want to have. They're doing it by experimentation, uh, ad hoc, I think. And uh, uh, what needs to be done and what obviously is going to emerge in the kind of uh, uh, is a consciousness of how are they going to uh, make the economy more productive, more efficient, and use the economic surplus to raise living standards instead of to create a wealthy rentier financial and rent-seeking landlord and class monopolists uh, that you're seeing in Europe and the United States. The interesting thing is, when you say ad hoc, you're absolutely correct in the sense that in Russia, you get the sense that at the very high level of government, Putin himself, very frustrated right from the outset with a neoliberal model, but at the same time, very intimidated by the oligarchs around him, very, very uh, wary of taking on 
neoliberals within the finance ministry and the central bank, but at the same time, as I say, frustrated himself and going gradually, ever so gradually, with the grain of what is needed to try to bring the system back to some kind of stability. So you can see this. You can see this, for example, the banking system. I mean, the banking system, which people don't know about this or think much about this. I mean, the banking system has been changed completely in Russia over the last 30 years. I mean, it's become, it, it, it had become almost completely private. The Sberbank was still functioning as a state bank, but there was always the possibility that it would be privatized. Now, we've gone from a largely private banking system with banks. A, a Russian banker once said to me, Russian banks are black holes. They're black holes in the economy. They are a disaster as they are. We've gone from a private banking system to one that is almost entirely state-owned. There are a few Russian private banks still, but the big banks, the really important ones, are state-owned. We've also, but we've also had other things happening. We have now the emergence of industrial policy. But all of this has been reactive. And to some extent, it's been re it's it's happened in response to pressure from the West. So we have financial sanctions, which in effect almost oblige the sort of state control of the financial system. We've had a, a, a shift in the way in which the ruble is managed from, you know, policy go full convertibility towards now we're getting capital controls coming back. We're, we're, we're starting to see a kind of protectionism imposed on the economy from the outside. But it is all completely reactive up to this time. Well, I think that uh, ad hoc policy was deliberate, uh, certainly in China's case. Uh, in the 1970s, I uh, was working for a number of U.S. government uh, agencies as an, as an economic advisor, and I talked to a Chinese official, uh, the representative of the World Bank, and he said, look, uh, we really love the ideas you have. We've got to bring you over to Shanghai for our Futures Institute there uh, and, uh, uh, you know, tell us a bit about your background. Well, I told him about my background, and I grew up uh, uh, in a Marxist family. My father was a political prisoner. Uh, in the United States, and uh, the uh, the Chinese official said, "Oh dear, uh, I, I think you'd better not go to China. Uh, the one thing they don't want is anyone with a Marxist background. Uh, they want to really develop something new." And I uh, I could understand why, because they thought that most people with a Marxist background were the old Stalinist types. That uh, the one thing China did not want to do was follow the old central planning of Russia. They wanted to have uh, a hundred flowers bloom. Uh, and uh, they, they thought that anyone that had a Marxist background would, that I would uh, be uh, in favor of that kind of centralized planning. Well, I wasn't, but I, I uh, they actually said my life might be in danger. if They, they didn't want me to interfere in uh, domestic uh, Chinese uh, uh, affairs, so uh, I didn't go. And I could understand uh, why they did this. They, the irony is that what really helped China develop so much was none under other than the great destroyer of American capitalism, Milton Friedman and the Chicago 
Chicago school, that the Shanghai people uh, had Milton Friedman come over and talk about uh, uh, the free market and all of that. And uh, the one thing that uh, Friedman and the Chicago boys were able to convince China was uh, they're always going to be ambitious, intelligent people that see a need for something uh, that uh, governments can't really uh, innovate. Let let there be innovation. Uh, let people try to make money everywhere. And if they succeed, let them succeed up to a point and get wealthy up to a point. Let them uh, follow it. And then you decide uh who to help and who to subsidize and how to join in, but you become their financiers, not uh, private financing. And that actually worked. That that you had, uh, that was Deng's policy, uh, uh, black cat, white cat, as long as they catch mice, uh, that's the important thing. Well, uh, that ad hoc policy is what enabled China to end up uh, making good judgment because the judgment was done by a pretty large uh, central committee that uh, uh, would uh, uh, ended up having good judgment as to what what industries to support, uh, like uh, your uh, high speed rail that you mentioned, uh, and and uh, other industries. So uh, it it all worked out. But once now that it's working out in their ad hoc way, I think it would be the next step is for them to say, here is why it's worked out. It's worked out because here are the basic principles that we want to have as an economic. Uh, platform, whether you call it socialism or industrial capitalism or something entirely different, the name doesn't matter. But uh, it would be we really should tie it together into the new economic system that for Russia, China, uh, Eurasia as a whole, and uh, the whole global, uh, the global South too. That's mm-hmm. what we're waiting to see, and I think it's going to be very much like what happened in the 19th century in British uh, classical political economy, a a distinction between profits and rent, a distinction between earned income and unearned income, and productive labor and unproductive labor, and uh, uh, public finance versus private finance. I think all of this is about to be codified, and it would really help if people would uh, look at uh, uh, all of this has been discussed for a century in the 19th century. And uh, you're not going to, in America, they've dropped the whole history of economic thought from the economics curriculum because uh, they want, there is, Margaret Thatcher said, there is no alternative. And the way you make sure there's no alternative is you don't let any uh, knowledge that there was an alternative and that used to be industrial capitalism uh, that uh, people can develop. <laughs> Well, I just wanted to comment uh, more than a question that I think uh, it's uh, it seems like this uh, the ideology of capitalism kind of narrowed in w- w- what it could actually mean because the industrial capitalism we had, uh, it seems to have almost been uh, hijacked by the ideology these days because uh, whenever we speak about capitalism now, we only served one version, which is the one of uh, Friedrich uh, Hayek or uh, Milton Friedman, uh, and often people use the examples of uh, Adam Smith or David Ricardo to suggest, you know, this is the ideological foundation of uh, of capitalism. But uh, you know, David Ricardo, he was uh, in his book, he even wrote, 
uh, you know, to much of his surprise that yes, with every technological innovation, the the the, the return of investment will concentrate in the hands of the capital, uh, uh, upsetting the balance with uh, with labor. So he did recognize this, and he had the same with uh, Adam Smith. He, of course, he was recognizing also that yes, uh, uh, the the hidden hand or you know a, a maximum flexible economy is very efficient in order to uh, get get more. Uh, in- increase the revenue to uh, however he he also recognized that once the economy grows there should be some reforms to capitalism to to support and help the, the poorest so you don't have this uh, yeah, very uneven distribution and even uh, if i'm not mistaken adam smith was also a bit cautious about uh, uh, the development of uh, rent seekers in the in the economy someone who can uh, take away and essentially uh, not just take profits away from from production but uh, thereby also making production less competitive so again a lot of what problems the united states have today in which you have uh, an oligarchic class siphoning off uh, wealth and in the process making the entire american economy less uh, productive but it seems uh, uh, that uh, well whenever we talk about capitalism today this is the the friedman <laughs> hayek version is the only one the, the, this is the only interpreta- interpretation and the alternative would be mean that you would be a stalinist a marxist or you know so, something on completely the other side of the spectrum so uh, do, do you see any of this changing perhaps uh, any yeah, other intellectual emerging in who's able to make distinction between industrial uh, capitalism and financial capitalism and uh, like a Friedrich List of our time, someone <laughs> or another pattern? Well, you said the magic word, rent. Uh, and uh, the what uh, Adam Smith, Ricardo, John Stuart Mill, and Marx and the others were all talking about with value and price theory. And they defined uh, price as the excess of uh, the cost, uh, the price over the intrinsic cost value of products, and that difference of price in excess of value is economic rent. And the objective of uh, Adam Smith and Ricardo uh, uh, was to say we uh, this rent is unearned. It's a special privilege. It's a carryover from feudalism and a, ta- a historical tax. A task of industrial capitalism is to free society from economic rent, and uh, that be- uh, the, that is why the the concept of uh, exploitation uh, uh, in the form of rent and uh, culminated in Marx. The fight against Marxism is a fight against Adam Smith and Ricardo. And uh, all, what Marx did was push Ricardo, Smith, uh, Malthus, uh, uh, John Stuart Mill to its logical conclusion, and uh, so. The, rea- uh, the, uh, the and Marx showed how all of this was moving towards socialism, meaning a rent-free economy, uh, or, or where everybody earned what they uh, produced, and there was no free lunch. Well, in the uh, what happened, of course, was that the uh, the rent seekers uh, fought back, and by the 1890s, you had the Austrian school, reactionary school of uh, that became the von Misians and the Hayek people uh, in Austria. And you had in America, uh, John Bates Clark saying, there is no difference between rent, uh, there's no uh, uh, difference between price and value. Economic rent doesn't exist. Everybody earns whatever they want, whatever they get, 
no matter how they earn it. And that has become the basis of national income accounting. So if you look at the gross national product uh, GDP accounts of uh, the United States and Europe, uh, they count economic rent as if it's an addition to product, uh, to GDP. Uh, interest charges, late charges are uh, in addition to GDP. Uh, the rise in uh, uh, the rents paid by people as the rents go up for their housing is all GDP. All They've erased the entire uh, thrust of classical economics distinguishing between earned and unearned income. And of course, that is exactly what China, Russia, and uh, the rest of the world want to distinguish. They want to have an economy where people are productive, not where fortunes are made by being uh, parasitic rent seekers, uh, making money in their sleep, as John Stuart Mill uh, defined landlord rent uh, and landlord capital gains. Uh, and uh, so the as it turns out, the one thing that GDP uh, does not report is capital gains. In other words, the increase in the price of wealth, the increase in the price of assets. Uh, most wealth in the United States and Europe is not made, and certainly in Russia, uh, was not made by producing more goods and services. It was by increasing the value of the property you had, uh, the real estate property, the stocks and the bonds, uh, the, the rent privileges that let you take the money you make from oil or nickel or diamonds uh, or other uh, products. There's uh, what is needed is a, a set of economic statistics that actually will tell Russia, China, and other countries how much uh, that we're producing is actual product and how much is overhead. The Western GDP uh, and post-classical theory denies that there's any such thing as economic overhead. Uh, monopoly pricing is not an overhead. Uh, higher rents is not an overhead. Uh, that's the one thing that uh, uh, in pr ad hoc practice, Russia and China are trying to minimize. Well, this, uh, this intuitive behavior uh, that they're, uh, they're doing should be reflected in a recasting of economic statistics along just exactly the lines that they're doing. That's what I'm waiting for. And most of my effort in talking to the uh, Chinese and uh, the articles that I'm publishing there uh, and uh, the articles I've done in Russia through the uh, Academy of Sciences have all been on this uh, topic. I, I think that you're making some progress, actually, because I remember a couple of years ago going to Perm, which is in the Urals, and visiting the university there, and uh, meeting people in the economics departments. And they were starting to talk about this there. I mean, there yep. was, I, I remember a sort of, uh, you know, discussion on these very topics. And partly, and I'm sure this is, partly a consequence also of recent experience in Russia, because rent there was so crude and savage, you know, the, the sense of rent taking from the economy, and was so open. And the people who were the rentiers, the oligarchs, were so, are, are so disliked that almost it almost set itself up, if you like, for people to start to argue against it and to sort of tilt against it. And yet the power of these people within Russia has managed to slow down processes of change to a, to a very great extent. And it's 
One of the great paradoxes is that you see that the West has actually been helping in a kind of curious way those people in Russia, and, and by the this is talked about in Russia itself, who wanted to see things like this change. So Russia obliged to buy its aircraft from the West, from the United States, from Boeing, from Airbus. Now, they're no longer able to do that. So they have to make their own aircraft. And they discover, remarkably, they actually do have the resources and the skills for people who know how to make aircraft. The same is starting to happen in the in, in, in the machine building and machine tools industries. They were importing them from the West. Now they're having to start making them themselves. They're having a kind of protection system imposed on them. They're finding also that the oligarchs who were so powerful, actually they're not really that powerful at all after all. They are in fact people who um, are unpopular because they're seen as pro-Western, but the very fact that they were keeping so much of their money in the West is starting to undermine them. And it is this very strange thing, which I wonder whether people in the United States have understood the extent to which they're actually propelling Russia in a direction which many, many people in Russia, including, I think, Putin himself, want always wanted to go, but which they were very afraid to go towards. Well, the policymakers certainly do not understand it, because suppose that there is somebody in the State Department uh, or the blob that does understand what you've said, uh, that will, uh, they will be called, well, you're not a team player. Uh, what we say goes. We're the exceptional country. Whatever we say can do. You know, I think uh, you'd be happier with another uh, uh, another job. So uh, if you under, uh, uh, not understanding what's happening is a precondition for keeping your job uh, in the State Department and the blob. That's the irony. For, and it's uh, all working out for the best. Uh, you're right. Uh, uh, where would Russia be without President Biden uh, urging it on? This is, uh, I, I just want to add, because I, I completely agree with both of you, because uh, if you look at the policies in which large industrial economies have emerged, uh, they've hardly ever been on completely uh, unfettered or free free markets completely, and uh, not neoliberal at least. Uh, you see, the, from the West to Japan, you always had the the recognition that if you want to have a free if free competition in international markets, you have to be able to compete. So, in other words, you know, you provide temporary subsidies and tariffs uh, or protection to build up your infant industries vis-a-vis uh, -vis the mature industries in the international markets. And of course, sometimes this is a, well, a historical, at least from the 19th century in the West and Japan, we had to have policies specifically to protect them. But but this uh, with the sanctions, not just against the Russians, but the Chinese as well, this is uh, imposed uh, development of infant industries. I mean, uh, look at the Chinese chip industry. This is amazing. This They would have to have some a very unexpected, they, the Americans threatened to, well, they did cut off their access to chips, and now the Chinese, uh, in record time, were able to provide all the funding and subsidies and essentially remove this whole huge industry, which was dependent on the United States, brought it under complete you know, technological sovereignty, uh, sovereign control over it. And now this is, uh, yeah, the, 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 
almost well they were already going this direction of course but uh, forcing them to accelerate it and uh, again uh, this i see the same in russia from agricultural products their cheeses their their digital ecosystems that emerging uh, uh machine tools uh across the border banks uh, the trading in their own currencies all of this it uh, would have taken maybe 10 20 years and it was pushed down to two years <laughs> to accelerate this process simply out of necessity so it's uh, uh but yeah i very much agree with uh michael hudson also that this was uh uh the this was uh something that yeah, became a requirement uh forced and this given that they don't have specific policies driving in this direction often reacting on an ad hoc manner i think uh, uh yeah there's little recognition for for uh yeah, how 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 we contributed to this uh, decoupling from the West ourselves. Uh, uh, anyways, I uh, I keep uh, noticing we may be running out of time soon. Uh, so uh, before we wrap up, shall we? Uh, I I'll pass on the word <laughs> to you guys. Well, I just, just 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 one question I really wanted to ask. It was the very last one because you talk about the, the you know the conceptual that they don't haven't they haven't yet worked out either in China or in Russia an alternative. Um, system of economic thought and th this is potentially um, in some ways a dangerous thing but um, both Glenn and I I think have noticed that in Russia they're now suddenly rediscovering Friedrich List and Friedrich List was very much in late 19th early 20th century Russia the dominant economic thinker if you uh, you know it's not just Sergei Vitter, who was the finance minister at that time, who was an open, declared disciple. But if you read, for example, the sort of economic courses that the foreign ministry school in Russia used to teach, very much based on list, looking at the American system as well of the 19th century, saying this is the model that, you know, Russia should follow. And we we both, I think, noticed that the Russians are suddenly looking back and thinking about him. I mean, I haven't read list. I should make that very clear. But is this is this something that is he is he is he someone that perhaps might provide some of the answers and some of the framework, or is it just a case of you know? nostalgia for another time, which no. you do unfortunately also see in Russia. Well, List was the first generation of American protectionists. He developed his ideas in the United States uh, with uh, Matthew Carey in the 1920s, 1820s. But then he went to uh, Germany, where, of course, he really uh, developed his theory that Germany needed railroad infrastructure and it needed a Belt and Road uh, initiative, basically. Mm -hmm. So I think it was via Germany that List got got to, uh, to Russia, but uh, the second generation of protectionists in the 1840s and 50s in the United States uh, went way beyond uh, List, and so they translated uh, List's book and said, well, uh, he didn't really uh, take into account, uh, he didn't really spell out how you needed to develop an industrial system based on high-wage labor. You need to raise labor productivity by raising its wages and making it healthier, better clothed, uh, better housed, 
closed uh, uh, and all of that. So LIST was only stage one of the uh, protectionists. And I wrote a book on this, America's Protectionist Trade-Off, where I talk about uh, LIST and his followers. Uh, I want to say one thing about what Glenn uh, said uh, about uh, the U.S. Uh, that is relevant to this. The U U.S. Uh, uh, never takes uh, into account that other countries may have a reaction to what the United States does. They've missed the boat every time. They had never dreamed that Russia would have an alternative or China would have an alternative as to what to do. And that's because they don't think of economics in the United States as a system. For them, a market is exists without government playing any role at all without uh, policy playing any role at all. And if you don't have a market, then of course there isn't a system. There's just a free-for-all uh, and a gravitization. Uh, and yet uh, economics in the 19th century was a system. That's what Marxism is all about. It's a, Economics is social and political. That's why the British called their uh, works uh, political economy. Uh, Ricardo's book was Principles of Political Economy, not a market economy. Uh, and so uh, the this uh, free enterprise market idea that uh, governments should not play any role at all, uh, uh, any subsidy, uh, and certainly shouldn't tax, this uh, anti-government idea has governed America, has uh, put blinders on American foreign policy so they have no imagination that Russia could do exactly uh, what Dimitri's talking about, uh, uh, that of course they've done, as any reasonable person would done, and do, and as China's done. That's the irony of all this. So uh, I'm glad that, uh, yeah, I think that uh, uh, Frederick List is probably in the Russian libraries, uh, the most widely uh, uh, held book on protectionist ideas. Uh, but uh, also, uh, Glenn mentioned Japan's productive policy. Uh, the uh, uh, American uh, per leading protectionist in the nineteen in the eighteen fifties was uh, William Seward, the Secretary of State Seward's law partner, Erasmus uh, uh, Peshine Smith, and uh, the Americans waited for the British ambassador to Japan to go back to England for a vacation, and then Peshine Smith went to Japan, became an advisor to the Mikado, and they translated all of the American protectionist works, and that became the guideline for how Japan developed its protectionism in the late 19th century. Something like that has to happen in Russia uh, and China, but it'll have to be by way of people reading the books, uh, because uh, there's no one... Uh, 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 living uh, uh, that's going to go there. So all, all we can do is rec recommend books for them to read and to include uh, a history of economic thought and say, how did other countries cope with a problem that Russia has today? How did, they, how did other countries grow and replace England to be free of England's control of international trade? Uh, let's see all, how other countries did it and uh, uh, we'll see what works and what doesn't work. Yes, that's the reaction you refer to, because uh, when Patient Smith went to Japan, or yeah, by invitation, uh, the Japanese, of course, have been looking at horrors with what uh, Br Britain uh, destroying China in the in the Opium Wars from the 1840s to 60s. So this is this is uh, again a, a reaction to uh, yeah, to the system changing around them. So uh, yes. yeah. Uh, any final words before we wrap this up? This has been a stimulating discussion. We could have gone on for hours, I think, but I think this is a good place to stop because 
Um, you know, we've we've also discovered, I mean, I didn't know about this, that there's this body of economic thought. Perhaps somebody should write to the Kremlin and tell them, and, and to Zhang Nanhai. That's your department. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, thanks as well. Uh, I really appreciate it. This was yeah. uh, immensely interesting. I'm glad we picked up a topic that uh, uh, isn't on most uh, discussion, discussion <laughs> blogs. Thanks again.